Well, I'm going to start. From the looks of things, uh, the future of medical mission appears to be overwhelmingly female. Um, so, welcome ladies. See a small male contingent down here and some old guys over there, but uh, welcome everybody. My name is Luke Heron. Uh, that's not my real name, but that's what it says here, so we'll just stick with that. I'm the International Director of AIM Africa Inland Mission. Um, I have some little uh, really cute Africa-shaped uh, things about AIM. If you'd like to pick one up at the end, they're sitting right there at the edge of the stage. So that's all I'll say about AIM for now. I'm going to ask Dr. Dick Bransford, an old friend of mine, if you would pray for this session. God, thanks for what Luke can say today. Thank you for uh, bringing attention to these closed parts of the world where sometimes people say to you, uh, I've never met a Christian. Uh, open our eyes, open our hearts, and uh, open the lives into those hard countries of the world. Praise you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. I'm going to go through this PowerPoint here. Um, it's probably best if you hold questions till the end. There'll be time for questions. So that's probably the best way to go about this. Okay. Medical ministry as accessed in closed countries, or sometimes we talk of, we refer to them as CANs, Creative Access Nations, or a number of other, other terms. And actually, there's two or three different breakout sessions that sound like it's the same topic under different, uh, under different names. So you can probably see what somebody else says about it, too. Um, I'm a family physician at uh, University of Illinois, uh, now the international director of AIM. Um, I uh, spent about 20 years in different Muslim countries of East Africa. Uh, my wife is here, Jenny, and I have two grown-up daughters and one grandson all out on the West Coast right now. Yeah. My heart for the kingdom is not necessarily for medicine, but it's for evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. And we've had this kind of family mission statement, that second thing. It says, pioneer evangelism and church planting among unreached people groups using medicine. That's what we've always tried to do in the different settings. And so to me, it didn't matter that much exactly where I was and what people group I was working among. We spent all our time working among Muslims, but I'm not even fixated on that. It's about places and people where there is no gospel. And that's been our heart ever since the beginning. We worked in a place called Comoro Islands uh, out uh, near Madagascar for about 10 years. That's a totally Muslim country. Following that in Djibouti for about five years, and that's a funny little country. Those are two little countries you probably had never heard of, or if you weren't interested in medical missions, you would have never heard of them uh, in East Africa, totally Muslim countries. And then in another kind of mysterious place called Horn of Africa that I don't like to mention the particular name, but you can kind of guess where that is. Um, in uh, 2013, we were, uh, we were unceremoniously uh, kicked out of uh, the Horn of Africa. And uh, since that time, I've been in our office in Bristol, England, uh, which is on its way to becoming an unreached people group. But that's another story. Um, in Comoros, uh, we, we worked in government hospitals and sometime uh, with an NGO clinic as well. Uh, going into Muslim countries, that's generally the way that we go about things. We don't have mission hospitals. We don't have our own clinics, but we work in different settings. And so I was usually outpatient. That's what I like the best, but some ish inpatient as well in that country. Comoros is a country of about a million people. Uh, yeah, totally Muslim, uh, between uh, one and 500 believers that we know of right now, and all of those in about the last 30 years. So the church is very small but growing. Uh, Djibouti is uh, one of the hottest places in the world, right on the Red Sea where it goes down and hooks into the Gulf of Aden. Another country of about, uh, about 750,000 people, totally Muslim. Uh, Somali people and Afar people, a related people group with a significant minority of Ethiopians as well. And then uh, the place we worked in the Horn, that was an entirely uh, Somali place. The best thing about being a missionary doctor is you get to dress like that. Um, the one on the right, that's me. Um, that's, uh, that's at an outdoor clinic we ran in Djibouti. Yeah. This is my good friend, I call him Abraham, uh, and his wife. Uh, that was one of, the, that was one of the, the believers in Comoro Islands, uh, a very good friend of mine, and I'll tell you a little bit about him later. 
This is another dear lady believer from Comoro Islands. We call her Olivia. That's in my living room in the Horn of Africa. You can't really see it, but those people in my living room are watching the Jesus film in the Somali language. The girl on the, uh, on the left is my daughter, Laurel, and the one on the right is an Ethiopian girl named Amina. Well, she liked to call herself Amy. She was a girl that I found in my clinic in Djibouti, and um, the Lord led us to bring her home. She lived with us for about two years. That's an outdoor clinic. That's my wife sitting in the middle. Uh, my wife is a nurse. Um, it's something we did in Djibouti to reach out to the poor people, squatters who lived along the railroad tracks. This is in the Horn of Africa, where I was more uh, hospital-based uh, training uh, interns and residents there. So that's another advantage to being a missionary doctor, is your tie doesn't ever have to match your shirt. Um, that's a very nice Muslim lady named Mariama standing next to me. And uh, you get to use those fancy uh, x-ray reading uh, machines, uh, just hold it up to the light. That's, uh, again, interns and medical students in the hospital. And I just threw that in there because that was one of the funny pictures. The only reason we know there was a patient in that bed is because of the, the urine bag that was, uh, that was active. Uh, we didn't even know if there's anyone in there, but we saw that there was urine flowing. That's in the hospital in, uh, in the Horn of Africa. I'll come back to these slides a little bit and tell you a little bit more about a couple people. This is my premise. And if you don't like my premise, now's the time to leave. But uh, I hope you don't. The goal of all missions is the glory of Jesus Christ among all peoples and in all places. Okay? Primarily through the preaching of the gospel, the making of disciples, and the planting of churches. Yeah. Especially among unreached people groups where there is no gospel. Most of whom live in creative access nations, can countries. Okay. That's the premise of everything I'm going to say here. Just to be very clear, to me, and I believe scripturally, the purpose of medical mission or any mission is not improving people's health and is not development, though those things are all good kingdom activities. But the main purpose is the extension of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. Why is medicine, and I'll come to this later, why is medicine such a great thing in a closed country? Why is it such a wonderful thing to do in a creative access nation? First of all, it gives you access. It gives you a visa, basically. These are all countries where you cannot go as a pastor. You cannot go as a, as a traditional missionary. You cannot go as an evangelist. Um, we actually had one lady who came from Congo that we brought to Comoro Islands. I don't know why, why she did this. But in the airport in Comoros, she was a midwife, and she was going to work there as a midwife and, and, and share her faith. But uh, she, at the airport, she showed up and she pulled out a letter that she gave to the authorities at the airport that said uh, that she had permission from her husband to come and travel by herself and to preach the gospel in Comoro Islands. She showed that to the immigration authorities at the airport. Yeah, she never, she never made it inside the country. Um, in any event, you can't go to Comoro Islands or most of these countries as a traditional missionary, but you can go as a doctor, you can go as a nurse. Okay? So, first of all, it provides access. It gives you visa, visa to the country. Second of all, it gives you a raison d'etre. It gives you a reason to be in that country. So, it's not just about a visa, but it gives you a place in the society that makes sense. Okay, And particularly for medical people. People are very used to the idea that medical people come, usually humanitarian type people, they may be paid a load of money by an NGO or their government, but people all over the world understand that Westerners and other people come to their countries to do medical work and they don't charge any money. So that's, we, we have an established position in these societies. People understand that. It makes sense to people. Our place in any society, and particularly a creative access nation, needs to make sense to the people around us. And being medical makes sense. Gives us a reason to be there. Okay? Third, it gives us relationships with people. 
It's a great profession as far as getting to know people and having opportunities to share your faith through those relationships. Okay, And primarily in creative access countries, it's all about relationships. That's how we share our faith. It's about the people that we get to know. Okay, Medicine, nursing, great for that. Okay, Finally, it's a great platform for demonstrating the love, mercy of Jesus Christ. I don't believe there's any better platform for this. Okay. Caveats. Okay. have just a few things. Uh, basically, my uh, excuses before I say some things that may be a bit more controversial. We must all seek what the Lord wants us to do. His ways are often not our ways, and his thoughts are often not our thoughts. To me, what I'm going to say is very logical and very clear, and everybody just ought to accept it completely. But sadly, my way of thinking is often not the Lord's way of thinking. The Lord does different things in different different people and in different places. So that's first. Everybody needs to do what the Lord is guiding them to do, not what seems logical to your breakout speaker today. Second, things are not as black and white as I may make them here. Okay? And the lines are not always as clear as I will make them either. Okay? Excuse me for that. I'm talking in generalities. But the lines are often fuzzy. Things are not so black and white. Third, I speak in generalities. There are always exceptions. Fourth, so please do not get mad at me. I'm usually a nice person and very reasonable. And... Fifth, this is not just about doctors. This is about other health professionals as well. So I'll keep talking about doctors. Excuse me for that. I am a doctor. That's how I think. But there are open doors for other medical professionals as well. So keep that in mind if you're not a doctor and you think that this is not for you. Okay. Okay. Did I? I think I maybe missed the slide. Yes, being a missionary doctor is challenging, painful sometimes, confusing, but it's the coolest job in the world. And I am convinced of that. I loved being a missionary doctor. It was not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it was really, really cool. Yeah, I'm doing something else now. I'm in the office. I'm leading. The Lord's made it very clear that that's where he wants me to be. But I'd be very happy to go back to Djibouti, go back to Comoros, go back to any of these places, because it is a great job. Not very lucrative, I'm afraid, but it is a great job. Okay. Principle number one. I have several principles here. Okay? And we'll keep those caveats in mind. Being a kind, competent Christian doctor is good. Okay, nothing revolutionary there. Being a kind, competent Christian doctor and letting your light shine by making sure people know you're a Christian, that's better. Okay? Being a kind, competent Christian doctor and using your position, skills, and profession to proclaim the gospel, that's the best. Okay? So, just living out your faith and not telling anyone, it's good. Telling people about your faith it's better and using your profession to actively spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the best. Okay. Principle number two. Treating the poor in Haiti. I just chose Haiti because it's a generic country where lots of people go. Okay, don't think it's Haiti. Treating the poor in Haiti is good. Treating the poor and proclaiming the gospel in Haiti is better. Treating the poor and proclaiming the gospel in Mauritania or Algeria or Pakistan is the best. Okay, hearing, a, hearing an amen over there. Well, I actually revised that slide because I felt like it was somewhat arrogant for me sitting here talking about good, better, and best, even though that really is my conviction. So, here's the previous slide restated. Treating the poor in Haiti is Christian service. Valuable. Treating the poor and proclaiming the gospel in Haiti is mission. Okay? 
Treating the poor and proclaiming the gospel in Mauritania is strategic mission. Or Pakistan, or sister over there. Okay. Ask questions. What is the Lord putting in my heart to do? Okay, that's the first question. What is the Lord putting in my heart to do? And that's significant. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything that's in our heart, well, that's just automatically what we do. But the Lord puts things in our hearts, right? And the Lord gives us the desires of our hearts. Yeah, the desires that he puts in our hearts. So ask the Lord, what's the Lord putting in my heart? What can doctors do in mission that others cannot? Where can doctors go that others cannot? How can the Lord, how can the, how can the heart, the gifts, skills, and experiences the Lord has given me be used in the most strategic way for his kingdom? It's kind of a key question to ask. Given me, given my experiences, given the skills and the heart that I have, what's the most strategic place the Lord can use me? Principle number three. There are things we do because we are doctors. Okay? No strategic thinking is involved. These things probably do not extend the kingdom. Non-believers do these too. Like offering excellent medical care. Okay? There's lots of doctors that do that. There's some that don't. Okay? My favorite teacher in medical school was an atheist homosexual psychiatrist. Okay? He was... He was funny, but he was a great teacher. And he seemed to be a very caring and wise psychiatrist. I learned so much from that man. Okay? All that to say that there are things that we do just because we are doctors or health professionals. Okay? There are things we do in the kingdom of God because we are Christians. Okay? No strategic thinking is involved. They might extend the kingdom. Okay, so Christian medical professionals are different. And it says leg story, so I need to tell you this brief story about a leg. I was in this place in the Horn of Africa. And a friend of mine who was a believer said, could you please come and see my aunt? She's sick and she can't leave her home. So we went to her home. It was in the city where I worked. And she was sitting out in front and her thigh was about this big. Just huge. And she couldn't move. Okay, and they carried her, or they moved her around in a wheelbarrow when she needed to move. I said, how long has it been that way? She said, about a year. I was in the refugee camp in Ethiopia, and they said I needed an amputation, so I ran away. I don't know how she ran away, but I guess that's figurative, right? She left because they said she needed an amputation. I said, okay. So I arranged, I probably put her in my car, brought her down, and we got an x-ray of her leg. And the femur was gone. There was no femur. Uh, you saw a couple little fragments of it. But basically, she had terrible osteomyelitis. The whole thigh was terribly infected. Um, the top of the hip looked reasonably intact. So I sent it to some, uh, some, to some doctors from another country who were coming up there on a trip. And they looked at it, and they said, yeah, the only hope for this lady is a hip disarticulation. We did brutal, bloody surgery. We take the whole thing out at the hip. That's the only hope for her. And I'm sure that's the only way she was going to live. I told her that. I said, that's the only hope you have. Will you submit to that? She said she would. So a couple of days before the doctors were to arrive, we, uh, we brought her into the hospital. We, we probably transfused her, pumped her up with antibiotics, fluids, everything we could to get her ready for this surgery. The doctors were coming the next day. I went to her that night. I saw her. I said, hi, Art. She's, I'm fine, and, and I'm ready for this. And I'm, the doctor showed up the next morning. The lady was nowhere to be seen. She had absconded. I think maybe her relatives convinced her that she should not have this done, and she disappeared. You can understand, people are very hesitant to have their limbs removed, even limbs that are totally dysfunctional and that will eventually kill you. Um, as I think back, maybe that was just the Lord's grace. That's maybe a lady who was going to die on the table, and he spared all of us from that. I don't know what happened. I never saw her again. I presume she's no longer alive. My point of that story is I cared about that lady's leg. I never got a chance to share the gospel with her. I feel bad about that. But I cared about her leg. 
I cared about her leg because I'm a doctor. Like you all would have cared about this lady's leg. Now, I went the extra mile. I drove to her house. I put her in my car. I personally brought her. I think we found money to pay for everything. I did all that because I'm a Christian. Okay. But those activities in themselves did not extend the kingdom that we know of. Now, there's ways, there's things that happen we don't know of. Perhaps that kindness that we showed her, perhaps the example that we showed to her nephew. There's different ways that the Lord works in these things, and we can't absolutely make those statements. My point is, I cared about her leg, because I'm a doctor, and I went the extra mile because I'm a Christian. Okay? But that was, not, that was not about proclaiming the gospel. Sadly, I'd hoped that she would say that she would get her leg amputated. We would have opportunity in the hospital on other days. Okay. Final statement. There are strategic things we do that specifically extend the kingdom. And these are not just things we do automatically. We need to think about what we're doing. We need to think about where we're going to apply our skills and use our profession if we want to have maximum impact for extending the kingdom of God. Let me say this in another way. There are things we do in the kingdom of God because we are Christians and the Spirit of God is in us. They may or may not extend the kingdom of God, but there are activities that we do in the kingdom of God. And then there are specific things that we think about and plan and pray about, and the Lord leads us in order to extend the kingdom of God. Okay? The line between those things is really fuzzy, I know. But there are things we do in the kingdom, there are things we do to extend the kingdom. Principle number four, healing bodies is important. Healing souls is more important. John Piper said, Christians are concerned with, re- with relieving, with receiving. It says receiving all kinds of suffering. Wow, that isn't what John Piper said. Christians are concerned with relieving all kinds of suffering, especially eternal suffering. Yeah. What am I willing to struggle to suffer and to die for. Uh, depending on who we are, some of us can go for a while on humanitarian impulses alone. I always thought I'd be good for about two years in the Comoro Islands or Djibouti. And then, and then I just burnt out. We couldn't keep going. Yeah. I didn't have enough humanitarian energy, compassion in my heart to go much beyond that. If it's just about relieving human suffering. What am I willing to die for? I'm willing to suffer and die for the kingdom of God. I'm not willing to suffer and die for development or health care. I just don't have it in me. But the kingdom of God, willing to suffer and die for. Yeah. I had a man in Comoros. He's an asthmatic. And in the rainy season... His asthma would get really bad. And he'd come to my house in the middle of like two in the morning. <gasps> that was how he breathed. It's like, oh man, this guy's going to die right in my living room. So the hospitals weren't good. Um, so I just start giving him injections right there. I used that old drug, aminophilin. Anybody use that? <laughs> I'd give him a little, uh, put a little butterfly in there, give him some aminophilin. You do it too fast. Give me arrhythmias, but I gave it slow like I'm supposed to. Gave him steroids. And you know, after a while, I started breathing better. It's like, okay, I'm going to go home now. And okay, he went home. I don't know how many times that guy came to my house and I gave him an and steroids, did all that stuff. I, I mean, I think probably I saved his life ten times, man. I don't know, maybe five times. But that guy's still going to die. As far as I know, last time I went to Comoros, they told me he was still alive, so he must have found somebody else to give him that. But, but he's going to die. I can't save him. The only thing that saves is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, it's, it's, that's the bad thing about being doctors and medical professionals. If you're like an engineer and you build a bridge, if you do a good job, then it'll outlast you and, and maybe be there a hundred years or something. If, you know, you're one of those Egyptian guys and build pyramids and be there a lot longer. But, but everything we do goes to the grave. Everything we do. 
And so it's, it's important to relieve human suffering, and we all believe in that. It's more important yeah, to bring healing to souls. Principle number five. The gospel advances through proclamation. We all know Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing. Okay? That proclamation can be enhanced or destroyed by good or bad behavior. But proclamation is key. Okay? Christian living, Christian example, Christian acts may contribute to the advance of the gospel, but rarely bring salvation. Now, you're probably all thinking, wait, wait, I know the story once. And it's true, that's the exceptions. I don't think there's very many of them. But there are stories where someone just saw someone's behavior and was so impressed by that that they wanted to follow Jesus. That happens. But I don't think it happens very often. In Comoro Islands, there were, there was, there were Catholics. Okay? There was a, a colonial Catholic mission that stayed on after the French left. And these people were loved and respected. There was one old lady, Sister Colette. They, they called her the Mother Teresa of Comoros. Well, she was a grouchy old lady, though, so I don't know. Anyway, I got along fine with her. She was loved in Comoros. They loved her. They had The Catholics had such wonderful health ministries and educational ministries, and they were respected and loved. I never met a Comorian Catholic. Okay? That was not enough to bring anybody to faith. They, they, they did not proclaim their faith. They felt like, no, we're under this Muslim government and we can't do this. So we're just going to be an example of Christian love. And they were. They were a wonderful example. But again, I never met a Comorian Catholic. Now, there's Scandinavian Lutheran missionaries among Somalis in various places, ministering for a hundred years. Yeah, and, and they studied that and people looked at it and they realized after about a hundred years, there had been about a hundred converts. Okay? Which, every one of those is wonderful, but that's one a year for a hundred years. Okay? There aren't any Comorian Catholics. There's very few uh, Somali Lutherans. And the reason is because there was no proclamation. Okay? Now, those are, these are hard places to work, particularly among Somalis. But... The gospel goes forward through proclamation. Acts, kindness, good medical care. It's not enough. Okay, a couple quotes. No activity is worth doing unless it presents a significant opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Dr. Dick Bransford, one of our medical pioneers, said that. I believe it's true. Second, Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. You ever hear that before? St. Francis never said that. Erroneously attributed to him. I don't know who said it. It's kind of clever. But the whole character of St. Francis defies that notion. St. Francis went to Egypt to try and preach the gospel to Muslims. Yeah. I don't believe St. Francis ever said that. There's no proof that St. Francis ever said that. That's irrelevant. The point is, this is something that we love to grab onto. We love this quote. And people quote this to me all the time. They love this because it frees us from the need to preach the gospel. That's what it does. And it takes away the offense of the gospel as well. So, I just put that up there to say that it's not true. We preach the gospel by our words and by our actions. Practical stuff. Before we go into practical stuff, let me just tell you a couple stories that I neglected, but the stories are the most interesting part. There's this sweet little lady. Working in a clinic in Djibouti, mostly taking care of HIV people. Um, that was several years ago. Almost all those people have passed on. I met this lady one day through a translator. She didn't speak any of the local languages. She only spoke Amharic. I didn't speak that. She was just miserable. 
had chronic diarrhea, couldn't get well. And she'd come, these poor Ethiopian people, they come to Djibouti thinking they're going to find their fame and fortune, and then they just get stuck there. Yeah. And if you've ever been to Djibouti or see anything, pictures of Djibouti, if Djibouti is the promised land, then I really feel bad for the place where you're coming from. Um, Djibouti's not a very nice place. And this lady, her name's Amina, she was so miserable, so sad, just sitting there crying in my office. So I went home and asked my family, I said, can, we, can I bring this girl home? She didn't have anywhere to live. Sick. And my family said, okay, bring her home. So she stayed with us for two years. She lived in the bedroom with my daughter. Yeah. She had HIV. Yeah. And she died in two years of HIV. But not long after she came into our house, there were some Ethiopians who came and started speaking with her, Ethiopian Christians who were speaking the gospel to her. And she said, Oh, this is what those world vision people were telling me in Ethiopia. She'd heard the gospel before. And these Ethiopians preached the gospel to her. And I was somewhere with these Ethiopians one evening. They said, look, look, look over your girl there. She's receiving the Lord. She's down on her knees in this big crowd of people praying to receive the Lord. We didn't share the God. We didn't speak Amharic. We couldn't even communicate with this girl. But these Ethiopian believers, they shared the gospel with her and she believed. One day, I brought another girl home. By the same name, Amina. This girl, this Amina, she liked to call herself Amy. She said, I'm Amy the American girl. So it was cute. We brought home another Amina. This is a, she was another person with advanced HIV. And we'd had her in our clinic. We didn't hospitalize her. It was hard for people to go to the hospital. So we just kept her in the clinic a couple of days, pumped her full of antibiotics and IV fluid and whatever else we could find. And... She was ready to go home, but I just thought, she just needs to rest a little bit. So I said, why don't you come to my house? And why don't you just kind of eat with us, and you can kind of rest this afternoon, and after that I'll take you to your house. She said, okay. So I brought her home. And uh, I introduced her to this Amy, and I went and took a nap. And I came back out later in the afternoon, and Amy is showing the Jesus film in Amharic to Amina. And Amina is saying, yes, this is what I've learned before. And that Amina, the second one, she'd come from an Orthodox family. She'd married a Muslim and left her Orthodox family and came to Djibouti. And her family was so grieved about that. And then she'd gotten HIV and gotten sick and her husband abandoned her, left her all, all alone in Djibouti. And Amy shared the gospel with her. And she came to faith in Jesus Christ. She died about two weeks later. Um, but a few months after that, we were, uh, we were coming on home assignment. And our Amy was getting sick. She wanted to go home to Ethiopia to die. The Ethiopians very much want to die in their home country, and their, their home village in particular. So we sent her home. Uh, there were some friends of ours, some nice Mennonite people who were going to Ethiopia and they, they, they traveled with her and helped her. And uh, she died about a week after she got there. A nice Christian lady called me and told me that she passed away. Um, and I felt really sad about that because we loved Amy. But I felt really bad about it because I felt like I'd failed as a doctor. Um, she was living in her house. We had all the antiretrovirals available. We had anti-tuberculosis medicine. We had, thanks to the Global Fund, um, we, had, we had pretty much everything we needed. And so we had what was needed to treat this girl, and somehow, we just couldn't do it. It just didn't work. Couldn't ever get her beyond vomiting up these medicines. It's funny, if the pills were any color, she could take them. But if they were white, she'd always vomit them up. I don't understand that. She had different issues with demons and she had little fetishes and this and that and we burned all those for her and prayed for her and the Lord delivered her and there was a lot of things that were happening in her life but something, she couldn't swallow anything that was right. I don't know why. And we couldn't get a lot of the medicines down her. And eventually she died. And I felt like I was really a failure as a doctor. Um, not just because she died. We had lots of people who died in Djibouti but just because she was right there in my own house. But the Ethiopian lady, the Christian lady who called me up and told me about it, 
She said, you were a father to her when she most needed a father. Uh, you know, to me with that. And you would have done the best I could. And then, maybe she didn't really need a doctor, she needed a father. And more than that, she needed a heavenly father than she found. And I know those two of are going to be waiting for me when I go to heaven with a lot of these other ladies from Chibuti. This guy was one of the hospital workers. He's a nurse in Comoro Islands, and I got to know him pretty well, just on a friendly basis. And I don't remember how we even began sharing the gospel with him, but he had an interest, and we did we did kind of a chronological Bible story with him, started in the in Genesis and moving slowly through the Scripture up into the New Testament. Um, I don't remember how and when he actually believed. Um, but at some point he did. But it was about a five-year process with him. And this guy is one of the most faithful believers there in Comoros. And he shared his faith, starting little, little groups in different villages going on with his faith. Um, some of the, pe- the people that we get to minister to is, is, is physicians that are patients. Some of them are fellow workers. And this is one of them. This lady was another one. She was a, well, they called him pharmacist, but that would be an insult to people who study for eight years to be a pharmacist. Anyway, she, uh, well, she sold medicine at the pharmacy. Um, and one day she came to me and she said, Doctor, tell me about your faith, because my faith is so terrible for women. And, okay, that was much quicker for her, but we just started sharing about Jesus Christ, and she, she came to faith as well. Um, and there were a bunch of those in Comoro Islands. Yeah. In, in Djibouti, what we started to do in Djibouti is we, uh, we asked people, <clears throat> what do the righteous rich do? There was an article in EMQ, Evangelical Missions Quarterly, that talked about the righteous rich. And you can look at Job or Abraham or this and that. And, Okay, these are wealthy people. How do they behave? And so we started asking people in Djibouti, there are Muslims, who said, how do the righteous rich behave? How do the Muslim people who you consider righteous and holy, how do they behave? And people tell us, well, one of the main things they do is they give food to the poor, particularly on Fridays. So we start doing that. We make this big pot of and bring out these people who along the railroad tracks, and they would eat that. And, and um, we had this clinic out there along the railroad tracks to care for those people. And then we started inviting those people into our house. Mostly it was to see the Jesus film. That was how it started. Had that in local languages. And, well, then they kept coming. And we didn't speak Somali very well at that time. We invited, we found a local believer who would come and tell them Bible stories. And uh, things got really out of hand. And next thing you know, we had 30 of these ladies and 20 kids. It was really chaotic all over at our house, and, and well, we'd make them a huge meal and we'd share the gospel with them. Um, the police knew about it. Someone recorded it over the wall. It was on the radio. People were saying, oh, the police going to come and arrest you. There were these big pictures. Someone had taken over the wall. Um, but nothing ever happened. Just kind of went on doing this. Um, a bunch of these ladies came to faith and we, uh, toward the end of our time in Djibouti, we thought we need to baptize some of these ladies. So we did. We went down to the, to the beach at night. You think baptism is a real public thing, and we, we think your theology, you know, you're in a Muslim country. So we, in a very cowardly way, snuck down to the beach late at night and we baptized these ladies. Uh, there were nine of them, and I told them, I said, bring some extra clothes because you need to change your clothes. So they, um, we did the baptism, and that was nice, and they went behind my truck and they changed their clothes. And then, uh, and then I saw them, they were running back towards the ocean. And what are they doing? And they took their old wet clothes and they flung them in the ocean. Yeah. I think they came back and I said, why did you do that? They said, we don't need those old dirty clothes anymore. Yeah, our lives are new. That was amazing. We didn't tell them to do that, but somehow they got it. The Holy Spirit told them to do that. Yeah. And in the place we were in the Horn of Africa. It seems like these were mostly poor women that we ended up having in our home. Um, I had a bunch of young women 
who had very severe chronic diseases, HIV, bad diabetes, epilepsy, congestive heart failure. And some of these ladies, I thought, they're going to die pretty soon. You need to find a way to share the gospel with these ladies. And, you know, we're not going to do that in our clinic in a Muslim hospital. No, that's not, um, not wise. And it probably would be taking unfair advantage of our position in, in those hospitals as well. So I invited these ladies. There were six of them. I invited them to my house. I said, we would like you to come to our house on a certain day. We'll bring you to our house. And we're going to feed you a meal. And we're going to show you a movie about Jesus. Do you want to come? You can bring your mom. And you can bring your oldest daughter. We don't want to bring some around. But, and so they came. And most of them brought their mothers. And some of them brought their oldest daughters. And so, yeah, I think there's a couple of boys in that picture. One of them didn't, uh, didn't obey. She brought her sons. But there we are. And we came with them and we showed them the Jesus movie. And they loved it. And we said, well, you want to come next weekend? So they came next week. And they kept coming week after week after week. And so most of these came to faith too. More of them came as we went along. That may well have been what ended up getting us kicked out of the country. Um, we recognized very early on that bringing these ladies to our house like this, this was the most dangerous, but perhaps the most fruitful thing that we were doing. And we didn't want to give it up. And I look back and I can say, well, oh, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. But you know, was it a mistake if people came to faith? That's a hard question to answer. Some friends of ours, fellow missionaries in this country, after we got kicked out, and you know, you're struggling with this, we were unwise, this and that. He said, never regret sharing the gospel with anybody. Okay, that was a good word. (laughs) Well, let's see where I left off here. Principles. Practical stuff. We'll talk a little practical things. Everyone is not an evangelist. Everyone needs to share their faith, but everyone is not an evangelist. That's clear. Um, actually, it seems like most medical people, most doctors, at least, that I meet are, are not evangelists. Uh, that's not the gift. Uh, and they're spending more time uh, with other things. But everyone needs to share their faith. And there are lots and lots and lots of ways of doing this. And I'm not here to prescribe a particular way. We can be very creative in the ways we share faith, and particularly using medicine. Next, being part of a team is critically important if you want to see more than physical healing, especially if you want to see churches planted. Some of the places we worked, we did evangelism and we did discipleship, but we weren't thinking very well about church. And so in some places there are individual believers still there, but I, I can't look back and say, well, there's strong churches. Now that may be for a lot of reasons, but part of it is just you just weren't thinking church planting. If you want to be involved in church planting, and I think you should, you need to be part of a team and have a team approach and strategy to that. Yeah. Third, working in creative access nations is long-term ministry. We're talking about long-term learning languages, getting to know people. Okay. There are opportunities for short term, but generally I'm talking about long term ministry. Practical stuff. Be very careful about where you get placed. Okay. Avoid full time or overtime work. Okay, that sounds really silly. How can you avoid full time work? But let me tell you, I, uh, in Comoro Islands, I worked the same hours that the government workers worked, and that was nowhere near full time. I ended up working about 30 hours a week. And that was great, because I had lots of time for other things. Okay? So, but especially if you really want to have a ministry of proclamation, of discipleship, you can't get yourself in a situation where you're doing call all the time and responsible for huge loads of patients, because it's just not going to happen if that's the situation you're in. Working for governments or NGOs is a good option, because you have a set number of of hours that you do, you have more time. Be very selective about the location and people group where you work. Okay. In general, avoid mission hospitals in reached areas. Now, that's a hard statement. Mission hospitals are wonderful. Okay. But generally, mission hospitals are in places where people are reached. Okay. But that's, it was either used as a strategy to reach people, or it was established after the church was well established. There are exceptions to that. 
But generally speaking, that's the situation in mission hospitals. Okay? Not all against mission hospitals. But if you want to reach unreached peoples, generally that's not the best place. Okay? There are exceptions to that. Don't throw something at me. Okay, think about mobilizing local health workers. Okay, training of doctors, training of nurses, but beware. Okay, training local health workers is not the same as training local missionaries. Okay, if you go to a country and you say, I'm going to train people and train them to do good medicine, that's really good. But if you want people to do mission, they need to be trained to do mission, just like you need to be trained to do mission. Okay? So training local health people is not the same as raising up local missionaries. Okay, practical stuff. Identity. You need to wear two hats equally well. You need to wear the physician or nurse hat. You need to wear the evangelist hat or whatever other hat. We're not going to talk about missionary hats in, uh, in creative access countries. But we have those two roles. Okay. You go somewhere as a physician or as a nurse, then that's the hat you need to wear. There's another hat you wear. We need to wear those equally well. Uh, not one on top of another. We need to wear them equally well. We can wear more than one hat. All of us do that. Okay. Some people think there's questions about ethics that we need to grapple with, and this is a whole other story. But I'll just say this. To me, the principal question of ethics in a creative access country is, are you doing what your visa says you're doing? Okay? If your visa says you're a doctor, are you a serious doctor in that country? Nobody has the right to ask you the question, what are you really here for? People will ask you that, but you don't have to answer that question. Yeah, that's not an ethical question. If you ask me, the ethical question is, are you doing what your visa says you're doing? Not what is really in your heart. I don't think so. Last slide. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. We've all been given something very significant in our medical training and education. How we use that. You know the parable of the talents. Yeah. Ten talents, five talents, one talent. Okay. The Lord gives us things because he expects us to use them in his service and multiply those things. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Yeah. Your medical education, skills, training is not your own either. Something the Lord gave to you precious gift that he gave to you to use in his kingdom. May the Lord lead each one of you to seek his will in the future. Happy to answer questions or hear comments from people. Yes? When you say creative access nations, are you referring to closed countries? Or what yeah, you can, you can flip those around. It's countries basically where you cannot be open as a missionary. So, typically Muslim, Hindu countries, Okay, but there's more and more creative access countries these days. Um, after those 30 hours or so, like working as a physician, what were your primary outlets to proclaim? Um, it, was, it was relationship. Um, people that I got to know, um, people that I've invited over to my house. Um, there were a few local believers, and I started to do Bible study with them, and, and that's going to be the most fruitful thing, actually, is encouraging those local believers and, and, and helping them to share their faith. So it was, it was all about relationship. It was about my neighbors, it was about my friends, it was about my co-workers that, that, that I got to know as well. One, one thing about, if we are open, and this was generally our basic strategy wherever we were, is we were just very open about our faith. Again, in Muslim countries, you're not going to, uh, it's probably inappropriate to use the situation in a hospital to openly proclaim your faith in that situation. Okay, we didn't do that. We would pray for people. People are generally very happy for that, have Christians pray for them, even Muslim countries. Okay, but to let people know who we were. And then people would generally seek us out. We always had people coming, and people sought us out for the wrong reasons, too. We had plenty of that, but we had people seeking us out for the right reasons as well. 
Yes. You said a team is critically important if you want to see more than just physical healing. What were teamwork team members that you worked with? Like, who else did that include? What would you advise to include? Yes. Um, it's a complicated question, um, and we. I was generally not part of strong teams, and I think that's, I mean, there were other workers in these places, but it was a lot of, in most of the places, we never had a strong team dynamic, and I think that was a problem. Um, basically, you need people with different spiritual gifts as part of the team. Um, if, if you're not an evangelist, somebody on your team needs to be an evangelist. Um, there need to be people who are disciples. If we're looking at, at, at the gifts of Ephesians 4.16, we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds, maybe not all on every team, but need a balance of those kind of gifts. So when I say team members, I'm not talking about professions, if you see what I mean, but I'm talking about different spiritual gifts and different motivations and trainings. If, you know, that one thing physicians can do in different places, and they can be... They can be the draw that's going to bring people in, okay? And they can be the one who, who forms relationships and then refers to other people. But there, we, there have to be people around us. Yes? What are some practical steps to take to, to find these creative access countries where there's really not many workers to find, like, a government job or an NGO job? Like, or, I'm sure it's different for each country, but what are some things you see or have done? It is different for every country. Um, I think the best thing to do is just to walk, walk through those exhibition halls and talk with different organizations because th- there will be people in country that have experience about those things. Um, if you're actually looking for to get hired somewhere, I, I don't know where to refer you, but I know there's places that, 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 that work on that. But I, I think it's best just to talk with people who have been in those situations. Yes? How is the, uh, the people of the Muslim countries will treat the Muslim background believer, healthcare professional? Do they get more acceptance or they will reject that? <laughs> I see your name's Ali. <laughs> oh, brother. He's asking about Muslim background believers as healthcare professionals and whether they accept it in Muslim countries. Wow. I don't know the answer to that. I think you, you've got wonderful possibilities for proclamation that someone like me would never have and wonderful possibilities for persecution too so yeah I, I, I can't really answer that I don't really answer that's a great question though but go for it uh, yes Most places where I worked, there was no local church. So, in, in different settings, that that may that may be an open door as well. I can't really comment on that because that just didn't really exist. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Boy, if I was living off what I made, I would have starved. Yeah. Um, no, we we were part of. From AIM Africa in that mission, we fundraised. Yeah, I I don't discourage that approach. Uh, it, there there may be places where yeah you can get a job, you can you can you can, you can earn a salary. Um, that's not going to be the poorest countries in the world, but there are opportunities to do that. What I would caution is that I think everybody needs a team. Everyone needs accountability. Everyone needs support. So just going off on your own in that if you can get a job, that's good. I'm not sure how effective you'll be. Yes. What would you say would be like the top, I don't know, five-ish things that you would say for someone that is like looking to go into country <coughs> to be preparing while they're in the United States? That's a good question. She says, "How can, how can, what are the top five things to do to prepare?" Um, I'm sorry, how much time? I, suppose, I know it's five. It's supposed to end at exactly five or before. How much time? Yes. Oh well, I'll, I'll, I'll just. Say, I'm sorry. Seven minutes. Thank you. I don't want to violate the rules here. There's this trap door that opens up and you go... Okay, this isn't rocket scientists. 
science. It's not rocket science. The best thing to do to prepare is to learn how to pray and to develop a deep and abiding walk with the Lord. The second best thing to do is to learn how to share your faith and share your faith with people all around you. The third thing to do is to learn how to teach the Word of God. Okay? Everybody needs to be able to share their faith and to teach the Word of God. That doesn't mean you need to be a preacher, but you need to teach the Word of God and to learn how to decide, how to disciple young believers. See, right? It's not rocket science. But then probably the next thing to do, if you give me another, that would be the top four for sure. Number five would be learn about cross-culture, cross-cultural work. Learn about it right in your context. Whether that's a different neighborhood, a different race, a different religion, any cross-cultural preparation is going to be helpful. So, if you know you're going to work with Muslim people, then find Muslim people from all over the place. If you know you're going to work with Hindus, then find Hindus. But if you don't know that, just find people of a different culture and get to know them and learn about them and share with them. If you do that, then please come join our organization. We'd love to have you. Yes. How were they raising kids in these countries? You know, it was great. Um, it wasn't perfect. Uh, but, you know, I, I was happy to raise my kids in a conservative Muslim country. Uh, the temptations uh, were, were much were much smaller, uh, and, uh, so it was just uh, I was I was happy to raise my kids in Comoro Islands. Djibouti wasn't as great, but still, um, a lot of the things we have to deal in, we deal with in raising kids, we're going to deal with them anywhere. Um, and, but I thought it was great, and I think if you ask my kids, they'll say the same thing. We, by God's grace, were always able to keep our kids with us. They went to French schools. Um, then they got a really good education. So the Lord has really blessed us in that. Did you feel like it was dangerous? I know you got kicked out of the country, but was it more like Was it dangerous? Um, you know, I don't know, because I never think it's dangerous, and it might be really dangerous. I'm just kind of dumb like that. Um, <laughs> The last place we were, I definitely think, was dangerous. I think there were plenty of people who would have liked to, uh, who would have liked to end our lives. Um, I didn't feel that every day. I didn't feel that at all, but it may well have been. Um, Comoros, Djibouti, no, I don't think was particularly dangerous. Um, the, the, worst, the thing we always feared, and it did not, I don't think we should have feared this, but the thing we always feared was getting kicked out of the country. No, we didn't fear for our lives. Yes? How did you know it was time to leave one of those countries for the next one? Well, getting kicked out was pretty clear. <laughs> this is how did we know how to leave. Um, you know, there were different things. Uh, it's probably a, a really long answer. In Comoros, we were there 10 years. Um, we felt like we were becoming too much of an institution ourselves. And also, our, our kids just needed a different school situation, and so that was, those were some of the things. It was much more practical in these different places. I'd like to say if a team goes out with the intention of planting churches or starting church planting movements, that you wouldn't leave until that happened. Um, I can't say that was our experience. But let me just, uh, there's probably uh, one more after this, but the, the, the goals we look for are spiritual they're not necessarily medical. Everywhere we went, we trained medical people, local medical people. That's valuable to do. But the goals were not, okay, people are adequately trained, now we can leave. That was, the, the idea was always, is there something here, is there a group here that's going to reproduce and grow on its own? That was, that was more the goal. One more question and we have to stop. Yes? For sure, yeah. Did you encourage them to maintain the Muslim identity as Jesus followers, or how did you set them up for... Oh boy, I'm not going to answer that in 30 seconds. She said, did we fear for the Muslim background believers, and how did we deal with Muslim identity for them? It was never a huge question for us. The people who came to faith in these countries, we were, they didn't want to maintain a Muslim identity. Uh, they, they, they were having none of that. So it was really not an issue for us. Um, we, we would encourage people to share their faith. We'd encourage them to do it wisely. 
Um, and some of the, and there was always persecution. And and some, some for, for for someone who's a young man, the worst thing that could happen is get kicked out of his family, and then he's just kind of stuck. So we didn't necessarily fear for their lives in all these places, but persecution was real, and that is something we have to prepare them for. But no, we never had to deal with that issue about insiders and staying in the mosque and this and that. So that's another session. Uh, I think someone has a session on that. I think I'm going to stop. If I've done a lame job answering your question, please come up and talk to me, and we'll talk a little more about it. So thanks a lot for coming.